The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, there are a few seats up here in the front if you're looking for a writing surface. So please feel free to come forward. Um, it's a wonderful problem to have. We'll make sure that we have adequate number of tables next week. But welcome back, those of you who have been in this study before. And if you happen to be new this time, we're delighted to have you with us. We finished our study of the book of Acts, and uh, about a two-year study, and so now we are beginning a study of the Gospel of Matthew, which will continue until the Lord returns in glory. So, <laughs> which could be any moment, so it's not as much an exaggeration as we might think. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to say a few introductory things before we begin. Let me encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, don't be ashamed to do that. Uh, one of the great colleagues of the church, not the one I used this morning, but or this afternoon, is the one that says we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's holy word. Well, you can't read, mark, learn, or inwardly digest it if you don't have it in front of you. So I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. Perhaps you have your Bible on a tablet, that's perfectly fine as well, but I encourage you to bring your scriptures with you so that we can study them in detail and uh, you can go ahead and if necessary make notes in the margins, whether they be questions or just notes for clarification. As we begin the study of the Gospel of Matthew, I want to say a few introductory remarks about what we are doing. And you've heard me say this many times before. You are going to hear me say it as long as I am your rector because it's important that we remember it. And that is that Christianity, at its heart, is not about religion. Christianity, at its heart, is really about a relationship. Now, I emphasize that simply because you and I, as Christian people, are called to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he departed this earth was that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all people and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Christianity is a missionary religion. Now, some people will say, well, my Christianity is a very private matter. Have you ever heard somebody say that? My, my, my faith is a private matter. I want you to understand something. Your faith as a Christian is a personal matter. It is not a private matter. We are to throw the word out liberally. It's been said that Christianity exists by mission as a fire exists by burning, and that's absolutely true. And the responsibility of sharing the gospel is not the responsibility of a select few, namely the clergy. It is the responsibility of every single one of Jesus' disciples. So everybody who is a Christian is by their calling intended to be a missionary as well. We are, therefore, to be 
not consumers only, but distributors of the gospel. We are called to be not only importers, but exporters of the good news. And you can't do that effectively if you don't understand that Christianity, at its heart, is really about a relationship and not about religion. I would say that there are three great misconceptions in the world today when it comes to Christianity. Some of you have heard this sort of thing before, probably in Andrew's Foundations class. One of the great misconceptions that many people have about Christianity is that Christianity, at its heart, is really nothing more than a creed, a statement of belief, a declaration of certain things that a group of people assent to. And there's no doubt about the fact that as Christians, there are certain things that you and I believe. We do have creeds. That is a part of what it means to be a Christian, to have some knowledge of what the faith is all about. Uh, Every Sunday, we stand up immediately following the sermon, and we profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed, if it's the Eucharist, or if it happens to be the surface of morning prayer, we stand up and we profess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And we say that there are a number of things that we understand and a number of things that we declare that we believe. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of the world to come. Those are all things that Christians believe. And the last thing I want to do is in any way belittle those beliefs. But while those things are certainly part of what it means to be a Christian, they are not the essence of Christianity. And so if some people really think that's what it means to be a Christian, simply to believe those sorts of things, I'm here to disabuse you of that idea. As a matter of fact, the Apostle James in his epistle says, you believe that there is a God? You believe all of the articles of the creed? Good for you. Even the devil believes. Are you aware of the fact that the devil can stand up and say the Nicene Creed without crossing his fingers? He believes in God the Father Almighty. He believes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He believes in the Holy Spirit. He believes in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. He believes in the resurrection. He believes in the life of the world to come. He knows all of those things. Did you ever notice in the New Testament that the very first creatures to ever recognize Jesus' authority were oftentimes demon-possessed people? If you were here in the study on the book of Acts, you'll recall that Paul and Silas were traveling through the region of Philippi and they were accosted by a demon-possessed girl. And that girl kept following them and shouting out at the top of her lungs, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come here to tell you the way of salvation. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Nobody else in that community, presumably the people were of sound mind, none of those people recognized Paul and Silas as missionaries of the Most High God, but a demon-possessed girl did. It's possible to believe all of the things of Christianity. It's possible to stand up and say the creed without any kind of mental reservation and still, ladies and gentlemen, miss the heart of Christianity. So that's a part of what it means to be a Christian, but it is not by any means the essence of it. Other people will say, well, if Christianity is not merely a creed, then Christianity is perhaps a code of conduct. To be a Christian means to conduct your life to act in a particular way. And you say, well, what particular way? Well, they might say in accordance with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have 
No other gods before me. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. Honor your father and your mother. And if not the Ten Commandments, then perhaps the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that, of course, is Jesus' great distillation or expansion, I should really say, on the Ten Commandments, what it means to live a Christian life. Somebody else might say, if you really want to put it in the simplest of terms, it's following the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, there's no doubt, again, that Christianity certainly has a code of conduct. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we have the highest code of conduct of all. It is the calling to love with a self-emptying, self-sacrificing love, to love the way that Christ loved. We say this on Sunday at the offertory sentences. Now walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. But the reason why a code of conduct or a particular way of behavior is not the essence of Christianity is, let's face it, there are a lot of moral atheists out there in the world today. I had a lady, she was a delightful lady, uh, in my last parish, and um, she came to faith late in life, and I, I used to love to spend time with her because she was just wonderful. She had a childlike faith. She wanted to learn more. She said, until my predecessor came to St. Helena's, she never knew she was a sinner. She said, then I came, and she discovered that she was a miserable sinner. <laughs> well, hallelujah. But I remember on one occasion, she had a son-in-law who was Jewish. Uh, he was a Jewish dentist and um, very successful, well-respected in the community. And I remember her saying to me on one occasion, I just love my son-in-law. I know he's Jewish, but I'll tell you, he's the best Christian I've ever met. <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant. She meant that in many respects, he acted more like Jesus Christ than many of the professing believers that she knew. But I want you to understand it is perfectly possible to be very upright in your behavior, very moral in your lifestyle, and still miss the heart of Christianity. Well, somebody might say, well, if it's not merely a creed, if it's not merely a code of conduct, then perhaps it is a cult. Now, when I say cult, I'm not using that in the modern sense of the word here, like the Branch Davidians or the Moonies or something like that. I'm using it in the classic sense of the word. A cult is what? It's a collection of religious ceremonies. And somebody might say, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to worship in a particular way or in a particular fashion. And there's no doubt that as Christians, we have a multiplicity of worship styles and services. Uh, you can have a simple Quaker service on the one hand. On the other hand, you can have a high pontifical mass in the Roman Catholic Church. Even in our own Anglican tradition, you can have all kinds of services. You can have morning prayer, you can have evening prayer, you can have Holy Eucharist, you can have Holy Eucharist right one, right two, you can have morning prayer right one, right two, you can have matins, you can have evensong, the list goes on and on. And there's no doubt about the fact that the most important thing we do as Christians, and I want you to hear this clearly, the most important thing that we do as Christians is we worship. But even though worship is very important, it is not the essence of Christianity. In fact, it is possible, although very difficult, it is nevertheless perfectly possible to have all three of those things. To be orthodox in your theology, to be upright in your moral conduct, 
and to be faithful in your Sunday attendance and still miss the heart of Christianity. Now, I say that is difficult, but it is nevertheless possible. John Stott mentions as a great example of this a familiar figure to Methodists, John Wesley. If you know anything about John Wesley, um, you know that he was raised in a very religious background. Uh, his father was a vicar in the Church of England. Uh, he and his brother Charles went off to university at Oxford. Uh, they took first-class honors. They were brilliant young men. Um, they were extremely interested in helping the poor. And while they were there at Oxford, the two Wesley brothers and some of their friends founded what became known as the Holy Club. Now, I don't know about you. When I went to college, there were all kinds of clubs. But the Holy Club is not one that would have necessarily attracted me at that point in my life. I was not interested in that kind of Holy Club. But that's the kind of club that he established. He was very faithful in his church attendance. He worked with the down and outers in some of the worst parts of Oxford and then in some of the worst parts of London. He was highly respected. During the course of his life, John Wesley, the early part of his life, memorized verbatim the entire book of Psalms. He was regarded as an extremely upright man. And he decided that he was going to give his life to the service of the church. And so he was ordained and he decided that he wanted to go to some place where he could convert the heathen. And evidently he felt that Savannah, Georgia was a good place to start because that was the first place he went in terms of his ministry. Uh, he set sail, having been ordained a deacon and a priest by the Bishop of Oxford, and he came to Savannah, Georgia, and he began to preach the gospel there. He established what became the mother church of the Diocese of Georgia, Christ Church in the city of Savannah, if you've ever been there. And here was a man, just a brilliant scholar, understood the scriptures, raised in a church home, religious in his outset, moral, founded the Holy Club, all of those things. And he was an abject failure. An abject failure. So much of a failure, in fact, that he was actually run out of the colony of Georgia, fled here to Charleston, to St. Philip's. And the rector here at the time didn't know quite what to do with Wesley and so sort of sent him on his way. And while on a journey back to England, dejected as a failure, a man who had shown so much promise, he met a group of Moravian Christians. And they were so impressed with his knowledge of the scriptures and the things that he knew about God. But they were disappointed that he was so dejected and downhearted. And he said he didn't know why he had failed. And one of the Moravians had the courage to tell him. They said they suspected that while he knew a great deal about God, he did not know God. That was very troubling to Wesley. He came back to London, and one night he was wandering through the Aldersgate section of that city, very de depressed, and he saw a little Moravian chapel. And he remembered those Moravians he'd met on the ship. And went into that little Moravian chapel, and he heard the minister reading from Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. And as he said that he heard those words, the same words, incidentally, that converted Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith, by trust. He said, I found my heart strangely warmed. 
He said, I discovered that I who went to America to convert the heathen had myself never been converted. And that night, he entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. As you know, he would go on to become the founder of Methodism, become one of the great missionaries in the 18th century in England. In fact, many scholars contend that the only reason that Britain never went through a bloody revolution the way the French went through a bloody revolution was due in large measure to the preaching and the ministry of John Wesley. See, that's what a personal relationship can do. He had all the other components, but somehow he had missed the essence of Christianity because the essence of Christianity is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn for just a moment to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Faithful in your church attendance. Philippians chapter 3. Look at how Paul describes his own life. But whatever gain I had, Paul, of course, catalogs all of the accomplishments that he had as a Jew and as a Pharisee. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, everything that I once valued as loss compared to the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It's interesting to note that he doesn't say knowing about Christ Jesus. He said, I have considered everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. We must remember, ladies and gentlemen, the message of Easter is that Jesus, who died upon the cross, was raised again which means that Jesus is alive today. He intercedes for us. And because he is alive, you and I are capable of having a relationship with him. This is the unique claim of Christianity. You can take all the central figures out of the other religions and you will still basically have the religions. But if you take Christianity, Jesus Christ out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. Stott said it's like a picture frame without a picture. It's like a casket without a jewel. It's like a body without breath. So if we are ever going to effectively convey the gospel, and that's our calling as Christian people, we need to understand that this is the essence of Christianity. It is not religion, it's relationship. It's knowing personally the Savior of the world. If you were at the Wednesday night Alive service last night, I preached the homily and I described the Christian life as sometimes like a marriage. And I said that there are three stages to every marriage. The first stage is what you call the courtship. That's when somebody gets to know another person. A man or a woman are introduced to each other. And they spend some time together and they get to know each other a little bit better and they begin to ask that question, is this the kind of person that I would like to spend the rest of my life with? Every marriage has to have that initial stage. But of course, that does not a marriage make. You have to go on to the next stage. And what is the next stage? Well, that's when this couple who have gotten to know each other and maybe even like each other, something happens. At one point, the light goes on and that light moves to something much deeper. It moves to love. I've counseled many couples in premarital counseling 
and the stories are always different, but there's one point where they converge and they all say, we fell in love. At one point, something happened. The way I described it last night is you get those butterflies in your stomach when that person walks into the room. Your heart begins to beat a little bit faster. You realize that it's no longer like this is love. That's the second stage. But the second stage is not enough. That does not a marriage make either, does it? There is the third thing that has to take place if there's ever to be a marriage. Yes, you have to get to know each other. Yes, you have to fall in love. But in order to have a marriage, you've also got to have what? Commitment. Now, this is one of the things that our culture really struggles with today. We're finding that young people are getting married later and later in life. They're living together rather than actually committing to each other. They are fearful of commitment. And part of the reason for that, of course, is that they've seen an older generation that hasn't necessarily stayed committed either. And so they are reluctant to get committed. But you see, that's what makes a marriage possible. Commitment means that you commit yourself to this person, but in order to commit yourself to this person, you have to what? Forsake all others. And cleave only unto him. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. To be a Christian is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're wondering to yourself, well, how do you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? The same way you come into a marriage with another person. You get introduced to them. You get to know a little bit about them. The more time you spend with them, eventually the light goes on. You fall in love. But then if that relationship is ever to be real, if it's ever to be lifelong, you need to make that commitment. You need to forsake all others and be faithful only unto him until death. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have a personal relationship. And the purpose of this class, this study of the Gospel of Matthew, is not simply for you to be able to say, well, for two or three years we went through the Gospel of Matthew. I know everything about the Gospel of Matthew that you can possibly imagine. The purpose of this class is not merely to educate, but to equip you to be effective in your calling as Christian people. So that you can go out and introduce other people to Jesus Christ. That they can get to know him and fall in love with him. That they can make a commitment to him. And in coming to know him, may come to know life everlasting. So that's the foundation for everything that we are going to do in this class. This is not just some sort of college class on the study of the Bible as English literature. It's much, much more than that. And since that's our calling as Christian people, Matthew is a very good place to start. The Gospel of Matthew. Now somebody might say, well, I've already read one of the other Gospels. Why do I need to read Matthew? I mean, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've already read Mark, Mark's shorter, so that's better. Or I've already read John because John has that high-soaring theology, or I'm very familiar with Luke because of the birth narratives and so forth. Why do I need to study Matthew? Well, that's like asking the question, why are there four Gospels in the New Testament to begin with? And by the way, what, what is a Gospel? Well, the word is, yes, the Greek word is evangelion, and it literally means good news or glad tidings. 
But for our purposes, the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are basically biographies. That's what they are. They are the stories of Jesus' life. Now, there are lots of famous people out there in the world, and the more famous they are, the more books there have been written about them. Abraham Lincoln, for example, is the most written about American. Did you know that? Thousands of books have been written about Abraham Lincoln. That screenshot up there is of a tower of books two stories tall at the Forge Theater in Washington, D.C., where President Lincoln was shot. They have a museum there, and they have a tower of books two stories tall, thousands of biographies and books that have been written about Abraham Lincoln. You think, how in the world could you write another book about what is there new to learn? But you see, every one of those books approaches the subject in a slightly different way. There are books there about Abraham Lincoln as the politician. There are books there about Abraham Lincoln and his moral vision. There are books there about Abraham Lincoln as a writer, Abraham Lincoln as a commander-in-chief, and the list goes on and on. And every one of those books, every one of those biographies gives you a slightly different perspective and helps you to understand and know the subject better. Well, the same is absolutely true for the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each approach the subject matter from a slightly different angle. And by reading all of them, we come to know Jesus even better. We come to know about him at the very least. And Matthew is unique. Matthew is unique. To begin with, it is the first of the Gospels. And when I say the first of the Gospels, I mean the first in the New Testament, not necessarily the first written. Uh, most scholars generally regard Mark as the oldest of the Gospels, although there are some who regard John as the oldest of the Gospels. And there is now a growing chorus of scholars who believe that Matthew is the oldest of the Gospels. But most scholars generally regard Mark as the oldest of the Gospels. But Matthew is the first in the New Testament canon. And in that respect, it forms a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New. And so it's unique in that respect. It is the longest of the Gospels. So it is the most detailed in terms of the material that it presents. For the first three or four centuries of the church, it was also the most highly respected and the most often quoted. So if you go back and you read the early church fathers, the patristic period, you'll quickly discover that Matthew is the most oft quoted and considered to be the most authoritative of the four Gospels. Something else that's unique about Matthew is that it is the most Jewish. Luke is written in a very high, polished Greek style. Now, Matthew is also written in Greek, but the style is not nearly as sophisticated as what you'll find in Luke. It is very Jewish in its flavor. There's an emphasis on all of the Jewish purification rites and so forth in here, more than you'll find in any of the other Gospels. There are more Old Testament quotes, complete quotes in the Gospel of Matthew than in any of the other Gospels. Forty complete quotes from the Old Testament recorded in the Gospel of Matthew as opposed to Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, even though it is the most Jewish, interestingly enough, it is also the Gospel that it is the strongest in its critique and its criticism and indeed its condemnation of the Jewish religious leaders. There's hardly anything 
like the woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew found anywhere else in the other Gospels. The only thing that even comes close to it is something that Jesus says in the Gospel of John about the scribes and the Pharisees being not the children of Abraham but the children of the devil, which we would probably all agree is not the way to influence people and make friends. But Matthew's even stronger in his condemnation of the Jewish religious leaders and their unbelief. And yet, even though this is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, Matthew, it also is the one that is most evangelistic in its outlook. It is the one that seems to be more than any of the others concerned with Christ's relationship to the Gentiles. And we know it's the most evangelistic of all, if for no other reason than this is the only Gospel that uses the word church. Now, that is a big theme in the New Testament, as we all know. The church. The Jews were called out to be God's chosen people. They were told to come out from amongst the other people and be separate. And God was going to use them to what? To bring the light of salvation to the world. And the church in the New Testament is the new Israel. That's the way it's depicted. We are God's new chosen people to bring the light of salvation to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what Simeon said in the Nunc Dimittis? Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Well, Matthew is concerned with the Gentiles in spite of the fact that this is the most Jewish and this is the only mention of that church. Paul mentions the church all the time, ecclesia, the called out ones, but the only gospel that uses that word is the gospel of Matthew. But if there is one focus, above all else, that Matthew puts, it is the emphasis that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Matthew's emphasis is that that one who was born in great poverty and humility in Bethlehem was born to be not merely a savior, but to reign as a king. So that one day the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So, our job is to introduce people to Jesus Christ. A good place to begin learning about Jesus Christ, if we don't have a relationship with him, is the Gospel of Matthew. And if you do have a relationship with him, a good place to begin deepening that relationship with Jesus Christ is through an in-depth study of the Gospel of Matthew. So are you tracking with me so far? Are you with me or have I lost you completely? You're not going to tell me if I did anyway, probably. So how does this Gospel begin? Well, it's important to understand that each of the Gospels begins in pretty much the same place. The story of Jesus, as far as the gospel writers are concerned, begins when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. But each of the gospels has its own unique introduction leading up to that event. Uh, John, of course, has that magnificent prologue. It is that prologue that reaches back into the deep recesses before time and history even existed, into time immemorial, 
John has the highest theology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. We're so familiar with that. Incidentally, anybody know why we have a, a lectern in the church that is an eagle? This is trivia. This is trivia. We've got a, you know, the lectern where we read the scripture from is an eagle. Why is it an eagle? All right, Martha, go ahead. Okay. Well, actually, what it is is <laughs> it's all right. Uh, yeah, there is a vision in the Old Testament in which the prophet sees a vision of heaven, and he sees these four living creatures, and one is described as having the head of an eagle, one is having the head of a man, one the head of a, an ox, and won the head of a lion. And uh, in the New Testament, in the early church period, those symbols came to represent the four gospel writers. And the eagle represents John. And so it's been a tradition, a long tradition in the church, that churches would have an eagle lectern. It doesn't have anything to do with American history, so just dispense with that if that's what you were thinking. It has nothing to do with being patriotic. It has everything to do with the high-soaring theology of John's gospel. The argument is that you always begin with the idea that Jesus Christ existed long before his birth in Bethlehem. He was the one who called all things into existence and at one point took on human flesh and dwelt among us so that we might know him, not merely know about him. So that's where that comes from. So John begins in that way, and that's why we have an eagle lectern. So you can go and impress your friends with that knowledge now. I think it's Revelation 21. You'll find it in there. Mark. Mark begins much later. Mark's gospel begins 30 years into Jesus' life. There is no mention in Mark's gospel to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem or to his youth in Nazareth. You know that Jesus, we're told, was taken to uh, Jerusalem on one occasion, and uh, the caravan left, and he was left behind about 12 years old, and he met with the leaders and the doctors of the law, and he instructed them. Remember that story? No mention of that. No mention of the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Mark feels that the rubber hits the road when Jesus suddenly appears out there in the Judean wilderness and formally associates himself with a fallen and broken humanity by his baptism in the Jordan River. Luke's gospel begins months before Bethlehem. And it doesn't begin with the ministry of John the Baptist, it begins with the birth of John the Baptist, which in and of itself was a miraculous event. And not surprising, Matthew has his own unique way of beginning. Matthew begins with a family history. Matthew begins with genealogy. So you might say that Matthew is unique and that it's not only the most Jewish of the Gospels, it's also the most Southern of the Gospels. Because <laughs> Southerners love genealogies. What's the great question? 
Who are your people? That's, that's it. Absolutely. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, and let's go ahead and read through this genealogy, these first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel, and then we'll come back and talk about the significance. Now, I'm just going to tell you, there are a lot of complicated names here, and the tendency is to just sort of buzz on by them as though they're not significant, but I hope to show you why they are greatly significant. So this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning, Matthew establishes that this is the subject. Jesus is the subject of this book, and this is his story. This is his genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, of course, Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Don't you love that name? Name a kid that. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So there's a history lesson here from the calling of Abraham down to the time of the exile. Verse 12, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Now there's a name that's familiar to us. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, you might say to yourself, this is not a very exciting way to begin the story of Jesus' life. You know, sometimes when you pick up a biography and you read through the first few pages, if it's dry as dust, you never get through to the end of the chapter, do you? And you might think to yourself, well, my goodness, why, do, why does Matthew give us this long list of names? What's the significance of that? Let's just skip on to the story that we're really familiar with and interested in anyway. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Oh, now, that's something that's wonderful. Silent night, holy night, that's what we're interested in. But all those names, they appear to be of no value to us. Well, you have to remember, as we've said before, this is a very Jewish gospel and the Jews were very, very interested in genealogy, in tracing your lineage back particularly to Abraham. That's what made you a Jew. 
And the author of this gospel was a Jew, Matthew. Now I should point out to you that there's nowhere in this gospel that the author is actually named. And some critics have argued that we can't really say that it was written by Matthew because he never names himself. In that sense, the Gospel of Matthew is anonymous. But from the earliest days of the church, authorship has been ascribed to Matthew. From the very earliest days of the church, people regarded this Gospel as having been written by Matthew. And I think that there are a number of internal evidences that suggest that it probably was written by Matthew, somebody who was very close to the events themselves as a disciple. What's some of that evidence, just so you know? Well, first of all, we know that Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. In Mark and Luke, he is called Levi. Now, do you remember who Levi was, or Matthew was? He was a tax collector. Absolutely. He was a tax collector, and he had been converted, and he was following Jesus. He'd left his money-changing booth, he'd left his tax booth, and he had come to follow Jesus. The early church held that Matthew was one of those who had chosen to collect the details of Jesus' life. And as I said, this is the longest of the Gospels, and it is the most detailed of all the Gospels, which is exactly what you would expect from somebody who operated as a bureaucrat and collected information. That is precisely the kind of material that Matthew would have collected as a tax collector. He was accustomed to research. The other reason why I am convinced that the gospel really was written by Matthew is not only because it is very Jewish in its style, and Matthew was a Jew, but also because the gospel is attributed to Matthew. And by that, what I mean is, if somebody was going to write a book that they wanted to make a splash in the world, they would not have attributed it to Matthew. When you think of the list of the disciples, Who do you think of immediately off the top of your head as as the great disciples, the familiar disciples? Peter, Peter, James, and John, absolutely. They seem to be the inner circle. They're the ones that always appear. They're the ones that, you know, uh, meet with Jesus, talk with Jesus. They're the ones that want to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand. They're the ones that go up on the mountain with Jesus to witness the transfiguration. Where's Matthew? Matthew's sort of out here on the fringe. He's sort of the forgotten disciple. In the early days, if you wanted to make an impression, what did you do? Somebody famous had their name attached to your book. You know, this is no different today. You you go to Barnes & Noble and you pull a book off the shelf, and if you're anything like me, before you actually read the book, I sometimes read the inside, the dust cover, but I go to the back to see who endorses this book. And if I'm familiar with the person who endorses it, and they say, this is a fantastic read, then oftentimes I'm willing to give it a shot. The very fact that Matthew is the one whose name is attached to this book indicates to us that he really did write it. There'd be no other reason for attaching his name to it otherwise. So this is a very Jewish gospel. It's written by a Jew, a man who is interested in getting down the details of Jesus' life best he could. The book was probably written around 50 to 60 A.D., very close to the events himself. If we can assume that Jesus ascended sometime around the year 33 or 34 AD, we are talking about, what, 15, 20, 25 years after the events 
themselves. So we are very close to the events. How many of you can remember events from 20 years ago? I'm not asking about yesterday. You may struggle with yesterday, but how many of you remember events from 20 years ago? Sometimes we can remember events from 20 years ago, like the birth of your child, as though it happened yesterday. And the same is true here. We are very close to the events themselves. And Matthew is recording all of these names because he is interested in who Jesus' people are. Jews were interested in that for a number of reasons. First of all, they had to be interested in their genealogies because that's what made them a Jew and it's what made them eligible to worship in the temple. You had to be able to trace your lineage back to Abraham. Otherwise, you had to convert to Judaism. So that was very important. It's particularly important to Matthew as he sets out to write a biography of the life of Jesus, a detailed biography. Why? Because he wants to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And everybody knew that when the Messiah came, he was going to be the descendant of who? David. That's right. He was going to sit on David's throne. So he's making the argument that Jesus is the Christ. That's how he describes him here in verse 17, as the Christ. Christ means anointed one. That's not Jesus' last name. That's his title. He is the anointed one. So Matthew wants us to understand that this one who is the Messiah, who is the anointed one, the Christ, is in fact an heir of David. He is the long-promised, long-anticipated Savior. But he also wants us to understand that this Jesus is not merely the Savior of the Jews, he's the Savior of the world. That's why he traces Jesus' lineage, not from David, but from who? From Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who was the son of Abraham. And then Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and the list goes on and on. Matthew wants us to understand that this is the biography of the one who is promised to be the savior of the Jewish people, David's son, yes, but he is also the one promised to Abraham who would come and bring descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the grains of sand upon the beach. The one who would be the savior of his own people, but also a light to enlighten the Gentiles. And so that's why he starts with a genealogy. We have a great hymn of the church that captures this beautifully. We sing it at Advent. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. He, in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgressions, and to rule with equity. That's what Matthew wants us to understand, that this is going to be a book about the one who is the Savior of the Jews, but also the Savior of the world. And then he wants to do one more thing. He wants us to prove, or he wants to prove, that Jesus is not just the Savior, He's the only Savior. In fact, Matthew's going to show by this genealogy that if Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, there can never be a Messiah. He's going to show by this genealogy that if Jesus Christ is not the one promised in the Old Testament, 
to be the savior of the Jewish people, then listen to this, there never will be. Now that's significant because how many of you have ever been to Israel? Some of you went with me. You're still recovering probably. <laughs> but you remember going down there. One of the most famous sites in Jerusalem is the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, the Outer Retaining Wall to the Old Temple Complex. And you see all of the people there. They're worshiping, aren't they? They're standing there. They're weeping and they're mourning. They call it the Wailing Wall for a reason. Because in the year 70 A.D., the Romans under the general Titus came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, put over 100,000 people to the sword, razed the city. And the only part that was left was this outer retaining wall. As Jesus said, not one stone left standing upon another. And they go there to weep and to mourn to this very day, longing, hoping, dreaming, praying, crying for what? A Messiah. And what Matthew wants to show beyond any reasonable doubt was that the Messiah has already come. He's come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Jews must be confronted with this because if Jesus is not their Messiah, then there never will be one. Now the great question is, well, how in the world does he do that? Well, I'm going to show you in just about 10 minutes' time that we have left. I'm hopefully going to show you how this works. But let me pause. I heard somebody raise a, a question or a concern. Yes. Well, most of them are fallen women. Certainly Rahab the prostitute and so forth. It's absolutely right. This is one of the other things that we notice is that in that genealogy, uh, there, are, there is a mention of Gentiles. Um, uh, they are people in Jesus' genealogy, not all of whom are what we would call pure-blooded Jews. And um, some of them are somewhat notorious, which just goes to show us that God works through all kinds of people. All right. Now let's just, you're going to have to hang in here with me because this gets a little complicated. But I believe that you can follow me on this. The genealogy in Matthew presents us with a somewhat perplexing problem. And one of the perplexing problems is that Luke also contains a genealogy. Now as I said, Luke doesn't begin with the genealogy. You're a chapter or two into Luke before you actually get to his genealogy. But you do get a genealogy. And what's interesting is that the first section of Luke's genealogy and the first section of Matthew's genealogy match. And the last section of Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy match. But the center section of Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy do not match. They both claim to trace the lineage of Jesus Christ. And that has created a real issue for many scholars. They've said, oh, well, that just goes to prove you can't trust the Bible. But it is simply not the case. Both Matthew and Luke are trying to do the same thing. To prove that Jesus Christ is eligible to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. That he is, in fact, a child of David. That was the promise. It was going to be one of David's heirs that would ultimately be the Savior of the world. So why do we have two genealogies that are slightly different? Because one genealogy traces Jesus' lineage back to David through the line of Joseph, who adopted him. The other line is traced back from Mary, his mother, to David. 
And the point that is trying to be made here is that Jesus exhausts all royal claims to the throne of David. And here's how this works. It all starts off with a sin. David's sin. What was David's great sin? He was a man after God's own heart, but what was David's great sin? He had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. It's even mentioned here in the genealogy, who was the wife of Uriah. David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. It produced a son. Who was the son? Solomon. But David had another son, had multiple children, but he had another son, an elder son before Solomon, Nathan. So here's what happens. When David dies, who is supposed to ascend to the throne? Nathan. Why should Nathan ascend to the throne? Because he's the elder son, and that's the way it worked in those days. Uh, it's not like Britain today, where the eldest child ascends to the throne. No, in those days, it was always the eldest son. Nathan was the eldest son of David. And so upon David's death, Nathan should have ascended to the throne. But he didn't. David decided to pass by Nathan and choose Solomon to be his heir. And so David has two royal lines coming out. Down from him comes two sons, Nathan, who has a legal right to the throne of David, Solomon, who actually sits upon the throne, so we'll call his descendants the royal line. And those lines continue down through the centuries until eventually they reach Joseph on the one hand, who is actually a descendant, Joseph is a descendant of King David, back through the line of Solomon. And Mary, over here, who is a descendant of King David, through the line of Nathan. Now, when you have those two lines, what do you have? Well, you have the potential for competition. You have one king sitting upon the throne, Solomon, and his descendants, but you have another line, royal blood, that though they didn't sit on the throne, they nevertheless have a legal claim to the throne. We call them pretenders. Now, in order for the Messiah to come on the scene, he has to have an uncontested claim to the throne of David. Now, if he comes through the line of Nathan, he can trace his lineage back to David, but he doesn't have an uncontested claim to the throne, does he? Because if you came through the line of Nathan, none of your forebears actually sat on the throne. You have royal blood, but you never sat on the throne. On the other hand, you could say, well, I came through the line of Solomon, and they did sit on the throne, and that is a royal line. And therefore, we are interested in Jesus' genealogy back through Solomon. Ah, but there's a problem there. And here's the dilemma. If you trace the line of Solomon down, you eventually reach a king called Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was a wicked king. Uh, he is mentioned here um, in the uh, genealogy. 
Jeconiah was a wicked king. It happens just about the time of the deportation. You read verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now that is the line that sits upon the throne. Are you with me? That's the line that sits upon the throne. But Jeconiah was so evil and so wicked as a king that the people were carried off into Babylon and God pronounced a curse upon his line. And you can read about that curse in Jeremiah chapter 22. So go back to the Old Testament for just a moment. I know this is heavy stuff, but hopefully it's going to come together. Jeremiah chapter 22. Verse 30, this is the curse pronounced on Jeconiah. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now there's the dilemma. When the Messiah comes, he has to have an undisputed claim to the throne of David. But can anyone have an undisputed claim to the throne of David? If they come through the line of Nathan, they are of royal blood, but they never actually sat upon the throne. They are of the legal line, but not the royal line. Those on the royal side will contest it. On the other hand, those who came through the line of Solomon can certainly claim that they have royal blood, they are descendants of David, and they actually ruled. But at some point, God pronounced a curse on their wickedness and declared that none of their descendants would ever again sit on the throne of David. So how can you have from either side an uncontested claim to the throne of David? It appears to be an insurmountable problem, doesn't it? Because if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, he has to have an uncontested claim. Now, how do you beat that one? Well, you and I can't beat it, but God does. And how does he do it? No. Well, yes. Here's how he does it. It's quite remarkable. Well, see, the problem with Joseph is that Joseph is of the cursed line. And Jesus wasn't the child of Joseph. That's the key. How does God do this? God makes a way where there is no way. God intervenes in a miraculous way that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary conceives a child. And that child, because it has her blood coursing through her veins, we say this every Sunday, of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother, So Jesus, when he took on human flesh, took on the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother. He had the blood of Mary coursing through his veins. And if you trace Mary's line back, it goes back to David through the line of Nathan. That is royal blood. But of course, the problem is that that was the legal line, but it never actually sat upon the throne. But you see, Jesus is adopted by Joseph, who was of the royal line. But because Jesus was born of a virgin and not of the substance of Joseph, 
Joseph can pass on all of the legal rights that were his by adoption for Jesus without ever passing on the curse itself. Are you with me? <laughs> the line of Solomon had the curse on it, which goes down to Joseph. Through that king. The other line is from Nathan down to Mary. By virtue of the fact that Jesus is born of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother, he has David's royal blood coursing through his veins. But of course, he was of royal blood. He was a descendant of David. He was David's son, but he had never actually sat upon the throne. But now, having been adopted by Joseph, Joseph can pass on all of the privileges that are his without passing on the curse. It goes back to that king. So you see, God resolves the problem by means of a virgin birth. And that's what Matthew is trying to show us then. If Jesus Christ is not the Messiah of the Jewish people, they can never have a Messiah. Because from whatever line he comes, there will be a contested claim. But Jesus exhausts all those claims. He is the one and only Savior and Messiah of the world. And I'll bet you never thought you'd get all of that out of a list of names. which just goes to show you how important every portion of Scripture is. And it just goes to show us that the God we Christians worship, the God with whom we are to have a personal relationship, is a God whose plans and purposes for our lives and for history will never be thwarted. He is a God who can make a way when from a human point of view there is no way. So as we begin this study, let us take heart and be encouraged. Next week when we come back, God willing, we'll have Christmas in September. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Gospel of Matthew, this remarkable book which we are about to study. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a sense of confidence that if there are those here that do not know Jesus Christ, through the study of this biography, they may come to know him, come to know about him at least, fall in love with him, and then commit their lives to him, that they may spend the rest of eternity in his company, married to him forever. And Lord, we pray that you would inspire us to be willing to share the good news of Jesus, who is the Savior of the Jewish people, the Savior of the world, the one and only Messiah of humanity. All this we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you.